You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And welcome into another episode of the Damn Podcast, powered by BeaverBlitz.com and 24-7 Sports. I am joined, as always, by Angie Machado of BeaverBlitz.com. And this week, by a special guest, we're bringing on Trevor Denton, the sports anchor and reporter at KVAL and KMTR in Eugene. Trevor is on hand at Oregon State football practice with Angie and I on the regular. So we're primed for a fun conversation about Oregon State football camp. I'm pumped up. You both know that I listen to this on my way to camp. It's like my final primer that I get. This is almost like a dream come true for me, you know? <laughs> this is amazing. And it's so fun to have a guest. Yay. I'm so this glad you're on with us. Box. Yeah, I think we're going triple box here if you're watching us live on YouTube. You can listen to us, of course, on your favorite podcast app. And a big announcement from uh, from Angie and I's world, we are joining the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network. So this is our first episode as a member of the new network. Uh, if you're listening on the podcast side, you might hear a few changes, some ads here and there, um, some new um, cover art. And uh, we think we have everything set up properly. There might be a few kinks that we have to work out. So bear with us there if everything is a little messed up for a week or so. But Behind the scenes, we're working hard to get all of that sorted out. It's exciting because on the Beaver Blitz uh, website, on the front page, we'll be able to pin all of our recent podcasts. Uh, you can you know, listen to us along with all of your other favorite 24-7 sports podcasts. It's a fun time. Uh, a it's a new era. Is, a lot of stuff is happening at 24-7 sports. And um, yeah, Trevor, we are, we're super excited to have you on for this, uh, this maiden voyage on the, on the new network. I'm honored again. I mean, you're starting a brand new era. You said the you got to work out some kinks, but you're perfect all the time, Carter. I believe in you guys. <laughs> you guys do incredible work. And, you know, it feels like we already kind of do our own podcast sitting in the stands at all these practices, chatting yeah. back and forth. So being able to do it in a more formal setting is very exciting. Excited about your guys' new era going on. The, yeah, the knowledge is. that is dropped at practice is, like, pretty Seriously. awesome. It's awesome that we actually get to get this on the record and, and have people listen to it because seriously, some of the conversations we have when we're watching practice, it's like, I mean, we'll cover topics from, you know, like in-depth what we're watching at that point to just random stuff about, you know, our, our memories from going to the LA Bowl together, staying at the same media hotel and, and whatnot. Um, Trevor, we are super excited to have you. 
just a quick rundown of what we're going to cover with with Trevor here today. Uh, he was on hand at the scrimmage with Angie and I, Oregon State's first scrimmage of fall camp on Saturday. We were at Research Stadium for what the third time last week. I think they practiced in Research about half of last yeah, week. Yeah. Um, Trevor and I actually did a walkthrough of the completing Research Stadium project on Tuesday. So we're going to touch on that later in the show. What we saw, um, kind of what we heard from some of the uh, the people who are walking us through and. Um, people who are familiar with the project, there's some noteworthy stuff coming out of there. Uh, some just miscellaneous camp updates. Um, we'll talk a little bit of realignment. Trevor's going to plug his USC um, his USC roots, fight on. I wasn't going to do the fight on, but since you guys are doing it, I'm just joining <laughs> the crowd. I was going to refrain. We'll touch a little bit on the Pac-12, uh, get some predictions there. And then there are a few baseball notes that we want to cover Uh, from the Oregon State alumni doing big things in the pro ranks. But first of all, let's start with that scrimmage that we watched on Saturday. We're recording this on Sunday, August 14th, so we're a day removed. We've had a little bit of time to kind of think about what we saw. Angie and I both wrote a a practice report at beaverblitz.com, and I know Trevor uh, was covering it down in Eugene Let's start with Angie. I want to get your thoughts here as, as the Beaver Blitz publisher, I'll let you have, um, I'll let you have the first crack at this. Just some of your main takeaways from, from the first scrimmage of camp. As the, as the old lady here, covering the team, um, gosh, I, you know, at the defense, so no touchdowns. I think by now it's kind of out there that the Beavers offense, none of the Beavers offenses, first, second, third, fourth team scored any touchdowns. So, um, I think that's significant, but I don't, read too much into it in that this is a bad thing I you always want your defense to be dominating early on and we haven't seen that quite frankly from Oregon State defenses the past six seven years so um the defense looks very good offensively I think they'll 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 gelled and they'll they'll come together but um I was blown away with the defense um and just the aggression we're seeing play loose I mean we could go through all the things the players have been telling us about playing under under Trent Bray but you can tell that they're actually playing, having fun, and they're able to play aggressive. I agree. I think it was the defense that won the day. Um, actually, if you know, obviously it was it was a close scrimmage to the public, but Oregon State tweeted out and, and posted on Instagram a little highlight reel from practice, and I watched it. And I think the thing that stood out was that it was like all defensive plays. Uh, you saw some takeaways, some sacks. Obviously, no touchdowns, as as Angie mentioned. Uh, so the public got a little glimpse of, of the scrimmage there. A couple of plays I want to highlight before we get Trevor's thoughts. Skylar Thomas and Jack Conne both came down with interceptions. Mm-hmm. Matthias Malachi Donaldson, a true freshman, uh, actually closed the scrimmage with a sack on the very final play. Uh, I thought the running backs, who we have touted very highly at Beaver Blitz, uh, were bottled up around the line of scrimmage by the defensive line with regularity. So it was all levels of the defense standing out. And, and Trevor, I want your thoughts on, uh, first of all, what you saw, but also are you concerned or excited about the fact that the defense was so dominant at this point in camp? Yeah, first of all, I'm just I'm looking at my notes right now. I have them scribbled here. You can't possibly read my handwriting. They're not as detailed as the notes that you two make, but I'm just looking at it, and it's contested short catch. It's good contained by the D. It's big hit. It's big breakup. It's sacked by 29. It's 
the good offensive plays are like nice check down or nice five yard <laughs> pass. They just weren't doing anything uh, down the field. We spoke to John McCartan afterwards. He's been a really good teammate. He was like, oh, you know, they moved the ball. We made some mistakes. They didn't make that many mistakes. There was one drive deep into the red zone and they made a fourth down stop. I asked him about the character of the defense, you know, classic bend, but don't break stuff. But Angie, you're spot on. Uh, they look like they look like a team that has now had a full kind of off season under Trent Bray. Like his influence has really taken hold. They're jumping, flying over the field, you know, in terms of what this actually means, obviously I get why Beavers fans are encouraged by the defense doing well. You just do want to see more from the quarterbacks though. I'm not seeing anybody process the field that quickly. Even Chance Nolan's probably looked the best as the starter, but even he, I feel like in those red zone drills is, is, is processing things a little bit too slow, taking a little too long to kind of go through his reads there. Um, so I'm a little bit concerned by the by the quarterback play, but the area of optimism that I think I had that I have is, you know, we're, we'll talk about the quarterbacks a ton. Everyone's going to talk about the shortcomings of the quarterbacks, but the most shocking thing is that the O-line's been getting beat off the line of scrimmage, and that's just not going to happen for the rest of camp. That group uh, has such high standards. They, they self-police themselves. I saw I – was, I was watching glued on the sideline to – Mahalchek and Brandon Kipper and um, you know they were kind of you know undressing the entire unit like being like uh, you know not laying into each other but but very much Mahalchek was making clear this is not our standards this is not the type of football we play and I think that's an encouraging sign for Beavers fans because that's just not that's not not going to continue with this unit I feel like they have two higher standards. Did you catch Mahalachek grab the whole unit and bring him over and just he, he really didn't seem panicked he just said guys what I'm seeing is we're not playing fast. And that's kind of what I think he's going to be hitting home. But um, you're right. It, it starts and ends up front. And it, it, I never thought I'd say that, you know, see it this quickly that the Oregon State defensive front was beating the offensive front. No, yeah, it's, been, it's been happening. Yeah. And, and even even in the run game, there's been uh, some great pass rushes. Even when on Tuesday, I think it was, they were doing one-on-one pass block drills. Um, they were getting beat on those. So I just don't think the O-line has quite showed up yet. I asked Mahalachek about the physicality on that day on Tuesday, and he said, you know, it was okay, but it wasn't up to our standards. And I think that's a big story for me uh, for camp so far. It's not just the quarterbacks. It's the O-line, too, not getting it done yet. Yeah, and I think those are two positions that, you know, we saw them play at a high level at times last year. Obviously, the offensive line for uh, a span of probably 11 games and quarterback for about half the year. So I think I have confidence that we're going to see high-level play from those positions again this year. So in my opinion, it's actually a great sign that the defense is dominating at this point in camp because I think that speaks more to the improvement that Trent Bray has brought on that side of the ball than any potential weaknesses uh, from key positions on offense. And, you know, usually in fall camp and, and even in the spring too, uh, as you're starting to work newcomers in and, and, you know, unlock the playbook a little bit, it is very common to see the defense win in the first scrimmage. It's very common to see um, the defense be the side that's making big plays in the first week or two of camp every year. And, I think one thing that concerned us in the past was that we didn't really see that at Oregon state. It was always the offense that was making the big plays. It was the running backs who were carrying the ball for 50 yards every day. Um, the fact that we're seeing Damian Martinez, Deshaun Fenwick, Trello bottled up at the line and sacks on the regular and interceptions every day. The fact that we haven't seen that before 
just makes me believe that it's it's more a sign of the defense taking a step forward than the offense regressing. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I I still what we need to see from the offense is consistency, and that no matter who the quarterback is, no matter who those wide receivers, especially, we need to see consistency. And so, um, but I do agree that we are seeing that defense. I I got into it a little bit today with a, a Duck fan, and he kind of was touting about the no TDs. And I said, well, at this point in camp, you, you want your defense to, he didn't really agree, but you know, I, I was, he, <laughs> I threw out Utah. I'm like, you know, honestly, if you have a good to great defense and an average to good offense, you're going to win a lot of games. Yeah. That was Utah's recipe for success last year. Um, I think to an extent, the recent Oregon teams we've seen, you know, they've taken a huge step forward defensively and, you know, the offense hasn't been the high flying units that we saw under Chip Kelly and, you know, um, the, the big breakout from Oregon football. They've been more of a defensive minded team recently, uh, and that has won games for very good teams in the Pac-12. Yeah, and Oregon's done that with really good secondaries, too. And that's one big takeaway I, I had is like maybe the secondary is everything it's hyped up to be like some players are calling it one of the best in the Pac-12. And they've really made things, I think, confusing. Uh, for the receivers, we talked to Lindsay. He's like, man, they're throwing so many different looks at us, and we're just not being ourselves out there. I think you could see the receivers almost thinking out on the field and just not finding the open space. And, you know, I think, again, that's a testament to Trent Bray. I think they've absorbed that system probably more than the offense is in sync right now. The defense just feels a lot more in sync. And that defensive back group is only going to make the receiver group better because they have more about, proven guys. Yeah, and think about when they get um, Alton Julian back. I mean – I mean, Carter and I talk on the way down and the way back. And I mean, you think about some of those guys we've seen from Ryan Cooper, the play that he's been showing. I mean, it, it seems weird to say, but Jaden Grant could be the odd man out and not and not be a starter. I mean, and I, I don't want to say that because he'll probably be a starter, but he may not get the minutes that some of those other guys get. It's hard to imagine a world where everybody gets the playing time that they deserve in that defensive backfield just because there are so many guys who – and I mean, we've talked about this on the pod. We've you know written about it at Beaver Blitz. There are so many guys in that room that I just think there are more starting caliber guys and potentially more all-conference guys than there are starting spots, which is a great problem to have. You know, I'm sure Blue Adams and, and Anthony Perkins are are absolutely loving the weaponry that they have in that room. But at the end of the day, they have to put the team in the best position to win, and it's difficult to know how to do that when you have four guys at safety who I think are worthy of starting more than two guys at corner and Oregon state loves to run nickel. And we've seen like three guys running at that position too. So I don't even know how you begin to address that situation. If you're one of those coaches, but I think it's part of the reason why we expect this to be a breakout year from the defense. Um, and, and one of the reasons why those guys are talking about the defensive backfield being one of the best in the conference and, and being something that, Oregon State's run to a potential Pac-12 title, which is their goal, their self-proclaimed goal, uh, why that runs through that group. My, my favorite guy to watch so far, too, on that defensive back group is Katan. I mean, Katan Oladapo has been all over the place. Is it a stretch to say he looks like Cam Chancellor out there? He's big, <laughs> he's beefy, he's like the most physically imposing guy on the team. Uh, but I've seen a difference with him in play speed, I feel like, uh, this year. He's been all over the field, Chance Nolan singling him out without being prompted. 
uh, I practiced the other day. I was like, man, that guy's making life difficult. He seems to be all over the field. He might be the biggest breakout in that group. I mean, had a solid year yesterday. Had that really nice pick in the LA Bowl. But um, he's looked as maybe the sharpest to me. Just in my practice notes, I'm writing his number down uh, a ton. I've really liked his play so far. Yeah, I, I would agree there. I think I think Catan's had a good year. I guess if I was to pick a standout right now, I would go with Silas Bolden, wide receiver. Another breakout kind of guy, um, had a big, huge spring game, but we've been talking about Silas a ton the past couple weeks. Yeah, so, I mean, we're kind of jumping into this next section, and I, I think we should we should definitely go for it here and, and just mention some of the guys who have stood out, just the individuals across the board, um, who we have picked as our kind of, mid-camp standouts, MVPs at this point. Angie, you hit the nail on the head with Silas Bolden. Um, I have said to you, and I can't remember, I think it might have been in our Twitter space uh, earlier in the week, I think Silas Bolden's a star in the making. I think he could be the next big receiver at Oregon State. Not physically. He's not a, he's not a <laughs> he's big, big guy physically. Um, but I think the, be- the, the next big name, uh, following in the footsteps of his brother Silas, who is now... Uh, with the Victor. Arizona Cardinals Victor. after standing out in the, the USFL. Victor Bolden, his brother, not Simon. Victor Bolden, sorry. <laughs> Put some um, respect on the USFL championship game MVP. Come on. He's looking great for the Cardinals. Yeah. He's making catches left and right. Yeah, but, no, it's it's um it's it's awesome to see the uh the bloodlines continue to be it's you know, Oregon State, I think, is is one of those programs that has benefited. I mean, look at the Rogers brothers, uh, the Hodgins brothers, uh, and and now the Boldens. Just the next the in that long line. Nashawn right. and, yeah. and Rajon, yeah. No doubt. No yeah. doubt. But you're talking about that receiver room, and and, and I think everybody kind of has the same mentality of who's going to step up and be that go-to guy. It feels like a lot of B-pluses, a lot of A-minuses, but who's going to be the A-plus? Who's going to be the go-to guy that it's third and eight? Who are we going to go to? You know, it feels like Musgrave might be that guy right now, but you want to also have that in a receiver position. I think I've probably been the most impressed by Silas and, and Trey Sean um, so far, but there's a lot of talent in that room that doesn't feel like it's fully refined yet. You know, what's Dunmore going to do? I, I like Micaiah Tongue. He's had really good days and days like the scrimmage where I didn't really see too much from him. So who's going to be that other consistent guy? Can they have multiple go-to guys? Jonathan Smith says they have multiple go-to guys, but I haven't, I haven't fully seen that yet. I haven't fully seen someone grab that position by the horns and be like, I'm the guy on third and eight. What do you guys think about that? Hey, hey, Trent, Trevor, um, Trevor, what do you think? You got it. Of, you got it. Every anchor always calls me Trent. So it's, Trent, it's normal. I'm used Trevor, to Trevor, um, what do you think of Tyjon? I was, I was getting Tyjon in my head. So Tyjon Lindsay, we, we heard from him Tuesday, Wednesday, whatever day that was. And he, he said all the right things, but do you think he's really going to step up and, you know, make it, I mean, this is his last year. Does he do it? Or do you think we see more inconsistency from him? I don't know. He did say all the right things, but it was also, you know, some things that you don't normally hear from a player that was like, you know, maybe I wasn't hitting up class enough. Maybe I wasn't focused on football 24 seven in the past. He came across like a guy that has learned a lot in his kind of journeyman career of, of transferring, coming to Oregon state. Um, so maybe it all clicks for him, but you know, um, it feels like, you know, this is often the case at Oregon State, but there's sometimes a size problem when you have you can have a couple guys that are five nine and kind of that slot role, but you don't want all of them to be like that. I, I want someone a little taller. That's why I think Micaiah is kind of like the X factor here, because he's physically imposing. You can't have everyone be five nine. I think Ty John's gonna be a great player, but who's gonna be that outside threat? You know, that's what I'm really looking for right now. 
One name I'll throw out there too that people at, at Beaver Blitz have been clamoring for, you know, they want to see him on the field more is Jimmy Velson, who mm-hmm. came in from Texas. He's a big framed guy. I believe he's about six feet tall, one of the taller receivers on the roster, and actually has started to take some reps with the first and second team groups in practice. Uh, he was in there a ton during the scrimmage yesterday. So good to see him out there. I don't know if you know he's ready to step into that big, you know, go-to downfield uh, target role that we expect uh, from from a guy with his stature, but. I think his height adds something to the mix and, yeah. and to your point, Trevor adds um, a little bit of a variety to a group that is really loaded with a lot of smaller, um, more, you know, more speed oriented guys, but on the it's topic not like of, Oregon uh, state's never won. It's not like Oregon yeah, state's never yeah. won with those guys. It's just, you right. want to have a couple guys that you could throw it up to on the outside. And I really think right now, as we sit in camp, that guy's Musgrave. And we saw that he was the chain mover against Oregon. We'll push came to shove against, you know, maybe the best defensive back group that they went against besides like Utah or whatever. Um, it, it was Musgrave. That was the guy that they went to on like third and five. So let's just see, you know, who else is going to step up. I thought Trayshawn had a really good scrimmage. Uh, you know, comparatively, if we're speaking about how how bad the offense did, he was the guy that kind of stood out there. But yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. That's a that's a really fascinating group because I think it's deep, but it's not necessarily top heavy right now. Yeah, yeah, I I totally agree, and I think we do see more tight ends. I think, you know, I think Musgrave, if he can build on what he did at the end of last season, I think that'll be big. And because he had so much, he had the dropsies there, you know, a while. But um, Overman, I think, is in the mix. And watch for uh, redshirt freshman JT Byrne. We're seeing that's a what lot I was of gonna say. Yeah. So um, those guys, you know, Oregon State doesn't have those USC receivers, those six three guys that can, you know, run super fast. So um, look for some of those tight ends to to step into. Yeah, Burn had no a Drake crazy day. He did. He had a really no good Drake game. London. Burn. Uh, he had a, I think, the lone like deep pass, and then got three on two other ones, and just was missed. But it's like this guy's getting. 30 yards of separation right now. He was probably the most impressive tight end, I'd say, in that scrimmage well, like, to answer like that you, question. Like you said, Trevor, too, it wasn't like Oregon State wasn't moving the ball, but they would move it in little chunks and then find themselves in third and long, and they just couldn't they couldn't sustain anything. Yeah. yeah. We're touching on Jared Hooper's question here from the YouTube chat. Who's the second best receiving tight end on the team behind Musgrave? Is that Jake Overman? Uh, JT Byrne, I think, is a great call by you guys. Just another one of those really talented young guys, you know, those true freshmen, redshirt freshmen, second, third year guys who haven't really gotten a look in the offense yet because they've been buried behind so many talented players like Tegan Quatoriano, Luke Musgrave, going back to Noah Tongiai as well. Um, Some guys who are, I think, key to this offense preventing a, a step back, you know, Oregon State needs some play from the tight ends and it can't just be Musgrave because for the last couple of years, the offense has been designed around having multiple tight ends who can both block and receive. So Jake Overman, I think, is is my pick to take that next step. Uh, he's shown us the most over the last couple of years and, and into this year. But JT Byrne, too, I think his frame, if, you know, if we're talking about guys who, who just look athletic, uh, he's very similar to Luke Musgrave in that you put him out there on the field and he just looks like a guy who's going to, who's going to run you over, you know, somebody give, who's I'm, going to create a matchup nightmare for linebackers and DBs downfield. I'm going to give my dark horse too, Gabe Milborn. Yep. Okay. I, I agree with that I one. Like and that. you know, he's been on the two deep in practice for shoot. I mean, two years now, um, a guy who I think is, is part of that mix of, you know, redshirt freshman who's looking to make the next step and I think could be a big part 
in why this tight end group is so good now and will continue to be good in the future. Um, so with Tegan the, gone, the fact who do you that there's think... so much young talent there. Yeah, sorry. Just with Tegan gone, who do you guys think is the best blocking guy right now? Because obviously that's so important in this offense. It's a good question. I mean, you'd like to think that Musgrave is just because he's been there for a couple of years and has really emphasized that part of his game. But I don't think Oregon State can afford to use him as a blocker because they're going to need him for his receiving ability. And and they're going to need him to perform at the level that they saw uh, the last couple of games of last year. So I think if you're looking for a guy who's going to step into that blocking role, I think that's where you know, one of those redshirt freshmen could really separate themselves and, and say, hey, I bring this to the team that, you know, maybe not all of the other guys do. Maybe some of those guys are more focused on catching the ball. Um, and I think that's where JT Burns' stature is just a big guy. You know, if he has that that tactical ability as a blocker, I'd like to see them use him there. You know who I think is going to be, and this is going back to another guy that Trevor mentioned, not really a tight end, but he's kind of a wide receiver, tight end, tight end, wide receiver. Um. Tongue. Great blocker. Makai Tongue is a great blocker. So, And that's how he's gotten on the field, right? I mean, so that will get you opportunities in this offense. With all the outside running you do, you have to have receivers that are are willing to mix it up. So that's a real ticket on the field. We're not allowed to name the one guy, you know, that also is involved. Are we allowed to say anything? (laughs) The the, the man with the nickname that rhymes with Yammer? Are we allowed to say anything about where he Oh, no, we talk. We talk all about it. I don't think the staff watches or listens to the damn podcast. Hey, but how about the defense? They stopped him yesterday. I don't think anybody on like third and short, I don't, I can't recall many defenses in the Pac-12 that stopped him last year. And now Oregon State's offense or defense did stop him. No, this is Jack Coletto. Of course, we're talking about Oregon State's utility man who was named an all-conference player last year as a utility player. Uh, He's going to be involved in all three facets of the game, continues to play with the offense. Uh, But to Andrew's point, he was stopped yesterday in the scrimmage. And I think, again, just points to how much improvement Oregon State's front seven has made because how often in the past had we seen, you know, third and two, third and three, third and one come up and you say, man, Oregon State's about to give up 15 yards here. Yeah, I'm calling him Rack Maletto. I'm not getting in trouble uh, like you guys are. I, I'm keeping the anonymity or however you say that word. But Rack Maletto, yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that he – I didn't know that he could be tackled. It was like crazy to see, but I do remember the he Oregon game. He got pushed game back. <laughs> I didn't even know that was possible. I mean, it must have been a, a, a bad day for the hammer, but uh, the previous day he was running, or Tuesday, whenever it was the last practice at Research Stadium, he was running all over anyone, everyone, so I don't think it's a reason for concern. But I do remember in that Oregon game, I was like waiting – for the immovable for or the movable object against the irresistible force, the matchup with Kayvon Thibodeau, and it did happen. And there was like a sonic boom in the Willamette Valley. <laughs> Everyone lost their ability to to see or hear for a minute, um, and it was like a stalemate. That's the only other time that I've ever even seen him close to being stopped. But he's always involved in the blocking game too. I mean, you, yeah. you end up in the red zone, you end up in those short yard situations. He'll move some people out of the way. Rack Maletta will. I don't know who this Jack Coletto guy (laughs) you guys are talking about. I'm not getting uncredentialed. I'm keeping it. (laughs) Hey, I will say last year we did see him line up as, as a fullback, I think on that play where he caught a touchdown pass. Um, So something that we've seen in the past. Fullback. I mean, I I don't care what I'm old. I've been out there. What are they going to do? Kick me out. I mean, we've seen him tied in. He's spread out wide as a wide out fullback, running back, quarterback. 
I saw him serving drinks. In, yeah, in the, I think that he's in the stadium between, bar. Yeah, he's he's yeah. he's pouring beers. He's bringing popcorn doing to security, people. Hey, I, I heard tickets. rumors of you know some construction people using a jackhammer at at the Reeser Stadium construction project. Yeah, yeah that's so that uh, him just is Jack Coletto just yeah. <laughs> yeah, he just punching the ground. <laughs> I can feel it all the way at the Sherwood. Boom. Yeah, that was him carrying the foundation on his back. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's great for construction projects, but yeah, I mean he 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 does everything, and and it's it's crazy his workload like like during practice. I mean, without saying specifically what he does, I mean his it, it seems like he's working harder than just about anyone, just with all the positions he plays and everything he has to know. They're talking about how complex Trent Bray's system is, and this guy's a second team linebacker. Like that's yeah. a very important role to be playing and the fact that he can absorb all that and and play as well as he does he he's one of the mvps of this team no doubt he's always going to be a factor for this team he's also an engineering major so i mean the kid has some brains so so maybe he is working on the construction project you know who else you know who else that was an engineering major nicobe dean so there must be some uh correlation between engineering and engineering uh, a great defense so there you go it's in the DNA. I want to move to the quarterback position just because we talked to Jonathan Smith after the scrimmage yesterday and got another quote-unquote update on this <laughs> quote-unquote competition that's going on in the quarterback room at Oregon State. Uh, Chance Nolan took, I think, like 95% of the first team reps yesterday in the scrimmage. He's taken about that many uh, throughout fall camp and and really doesn't seem to be giving up his grip on this job. Angie, you and I have both said this is Nolan's job all the way. Trevor, I want your opinion. Just based off of the practices you've seen, have either of the other quarterbacks uh, in Ben Goldbranson or Tristan Jebbia done anything that, that makes you think this actually is a competition and it's not actually just Chance Nolan's job? So you got the shorts on and you got like seven on sevens and Goldbranson throws the prettiest ball. It's like, ooh, that looks nice, you know? Um, you get him in an in-game situation. I think Chance Nolan's just a little more poised. You just trust him to get you into the right play, make the right play, you know, either check it down, pick you up five yards on the ground a little more. But Gil Branson, you know, always throws the prettiest ball to me. I actually thought Jebbia in a weird way looked the most composed in that scrimmage in terms of stepping up in the pocket. I thought everyone else was a little – had a little too much happy feet, got out of the play, didn't re- really let it develop either throwing it away or kind of getting out of the pocket too early. I actually thought Jebbia did the best job of stepping it up in the pocket, but he, he just didn't make the throws ever. And it's like at some point you just have to have consistency and actually completing the throws, and that seems to be Jebbia's problem. So, yeah, that's a, aside from Dom Montiel, the X factor and, and the future of the Oregon State Beavers in my <laughs> coverage area, Marshfield's in there. So I watched Dom Montiel in high school uh, last year, so I'm very, very partial to him. But aside from him, the X factor. I do think Chance Nolan's been the best so far, but I don't think he's been great by any stretch of the imagination. I, I completely agree. I, I, I thought I thought Chance was too quick to run, tuck and run yesterday, especially. Um, yeah, Ben. But I think Ben is working his way into the the second string spot, mm-hmm. um, and and I think warrant. You know, I mean, I think that's warranted. I, I think he um, does, like you said, he throws the prettiest ball, and um, he he can move. I. I mean, I knew he could kind of move, but and I he knew can, he, wasn't yeah. a, he wasn't a Sean Mannion statue, but dude can move. I, I was pretty impressed. I do think that all three of these guys bring something different to the offense. And to be fair, they're very good at what they do, which is, I think, why Jonathan Smith and, and his staff 
have presented this as a competition. You know, there there is some legitimacy to the fact that all of these three guys could step in and make some plays as the starter. You know, Nolan with his legs and his gunslinging ability, um, he unlocks big play potential and and mobility in the pocket. Tristan Jebia for his game management and his leadership. I think that's something at the quarterback position that's, you know, always beneficial regardless of, you know, maybe if you're not the best thrower on the team, just the fact that Oregon State's won games with him and that he's respected by all of his teammates, that's big for him. But then for Ben, the fact that he just, I I think, out of those three guys has the best pure arm talent, that's what makes him exciting. Um, And, you know, I I think is is part of the reason why I would like to see him on the field before a guy like Tristan Jebbia, who, you know, uh, of course, no, this is no offense to Tristan whatsoever. I just think the ceiling is a lot higher with Ben. Uh, And if you're going to go to somebody that's not named Chance Nolan, I want to see somebody who could take the top off the defense, you know, throw for a big play and bring something to the offense that that those other guys can't. I want to see Chance actually hit guys in stride this year. I think that's where yeah. he struggled. You know, I don't want to see a guy have to turn around and go back and catch it at his, you know, shoestrings, catch a guy in stride because Oregon State lost so many yards last year on on plays like that. And that's what we got to see in camp, right, that we haven't seen so far. I think that's just the biggest storyline in camp is what kind of improvements can this offense make? Can they become consistent? I think, you know, you guys have been around it longer, so agree or disagree with me, but I feel like, Jonathan Smith is more of the type of guy to value who gets us in the right play, who's making the right run checks over necessarily the flashy arm. Like, obviously that's important, but I think he values like a field general, right? And I think Chance Nolan's just the best at that right now. He's not necessarily the best thrower of the football. He's the best at getting him into the right play, you know? It's the quarterback in Jonathan Smith, just appreciating those little details uh, from that position. Jared Hooper asks in the YouTube chat, has Gulbranson separated himself from Jebbia? And I think in terms of, like I said, his his sheer passing ability, the answer is yes. But in terms of this quarterback competition, the race for, you know, first and second string, if the reps that they're taking is any indication, no, this is like a, this is a, you know, a 1A and a, or a, I guess I should say a 2A two. and 2B right now behind chance um yeah i i just think that like i said the, the ceiling's higher with Goldbranson, but there is still something there with tristan jebby a former four-star guy who's got talent who is uh you know kind of a field general guy who's you know going to command the offense very well he sits in there he sits in there right. and, and tries to make the throw and tries to get progress but to angie's point great point that she just made about gil branson is yeah he's way faster than people give him credit for uh yesterday he had multiple plays that would have been first downs you know you never know where he would have been actually tackled or if they're able to break the tackle based on the non-contact jerseys but I thought he did a great job of improvisation uh yesterday picking up like seven eight nine yards and he does have some speed to him so in that sense you add all that stuff together the arm talent having some improvisation skills yeah he's definitely definitely ahead of Jebbia even if Jebbia's brain uh might be you know a little more advanced when it comes to football knowledge I think that's a, a great place to move on to our next topic. We're going to talk a little bit about the research stadium construction, uh, move on from the scrimmage. We've covered, you know, our, our thoughts from the scrimmage and fall camp for the first half hour uh, of this week's episode. But Trevor and I got the really unique opportunity to walk through, through research stadium 
We're going to cover that next. But first, if you're listening to us on the audio side, if we've got things set up properly, you're going to get a quick uh, ad break and we'll be right back on the damn podcast. All right. If you are watching us on YouTube, no break for you. We're going to jump right in to Research Stadium, uh, the big, the uh, the big construction project on, on campus at Oregon State. There's you know countless workers there every day. Um, oh, <laughs> Trevor, Trevor, rock in the hard hat. I love it. The two of us had to put those on with our our safety vests as we walked through. Uh, we don't have to do that when we go hat. into Research to watch practice. <laughs> Uh, but Trevor, that's uh, that's that's a good look for you there. The, the home. I think it really front too. it accentuates all of my all of my best features. But I did not steal this uh, surprisingly, you know, because I'm not living on the edge like you guys while you're rule breaking. But we had this in the office. I used it as a prop on air. But yeah, we look kind of funny with our little hats on. But it was worth it. It was a great little tour, wasn't it, Carter? Yeah, it was pretty fun. Uh, you know, we get to kind of watch the the uh, the progress every day as we drive in through the the parking lot and you know the days that we're watching practice and research we're sitting what 60 yards away from it so we get to see the progress every day you know they're practicing six days a week so every day there's something new uh but to actually get to step foot on that side and, and walk through beaver street that concourse uh check out the temporary press boxes and and just kind of taking the whole feel of the place the thing that i i think i immediately felt was just it feels huge it feels imposing it's really tall um and and another thing is the fact that you can see the field from the concourse you know as you're in line at the concession stand you can watch the action you can feel the crowd around you uh you know you can look at that huge new video board i think it's a really cool feature but trevor i i want to get your thoughts because you were there too on it just uh, the feel of the place you know, it's, it's yeah, obviously, right. it's obviously, you know, not close to completion. They're still about 10 months out, but how does it feel to stand in that right now? I'm really committing to the bit, as you can see, I'm not taking this off, but uh, to me, it feels connected. It felt like two stadiums before, and it was kind of hard to navigate. I don't know if people care about, you know, what we have to go through as media, but we're carrying around all this stuff. And the fact that you have to like exit one side of the stadium, uh, go completely to the outside to get back in for press conferences or anything like that into the football building is always really complicated. So I feel like now that it's 360 degrees, makes everything so much easier. You know, if you want to go see your friends across, now you can just walk across versus basically having to like leave the stadium. So I like the connectivity of it. I like the open concourse feel. It just opens everything up and like you said kind of makes it feel uh bigger more complete mimicking you know what you see a lot at uh mlb stadiums even some mls stadiums have that very uh very open feel so that was the big takeaway for me just the connectivity it doesn't feel like like two separate buildings anymore it feels like one stadium and i think that kind of brings it up to date with with other ones in the pac-12 yeah it's a unique experience in college football right now to to have that feeling where it feels like it, it really is just a great look for you with, with the hard hat. Um, I appreciate it. No, I it's, it's cool to, to step foot in there and, and feel like you are part of the action, regardless of where you're at in the stadium. And I know that, you know, the concourse on the existing, the, the East side at Reeser is it's still in the stadium. You know, you can't actually see the field from the main concourse. Um, but there is that, you know, that walkway that goes above the student section. And so now 
you will have that continuous walkway all around the stadium where you could walk 360 degrees and watch the game the entire time, which, I mean, I don't know how many college football stadiums there are that have that. So Um, when I'm kicked out for mentioning, you know, Jack Coletto, I'll just walk around in circles. I'm just going to, I'm going to get my steps in and I'm going to walk around research stadium. There you've got some alternate options now. It's great. No, I I think it's going to be awesome. The Jumbotron is is obviously bigger, but it also doesn't – it's not going to be, like, cut off by, like, stats and and different stuff on the side. It's going to be a continuous video board, which is just going to improve the experience. Um, So when I'm, like, looking up, like, who made that catch, you know, with my terrible eyes, like, I'll be able to see it all better. So I think there's a lot of uh, cool new features. There's also going to be, like, a museum, too, like, in that that entrance on the new side of the building. Like, that's going to be awesome. You said Sean Mannion statue, and I know you were talking about his mobility, but I immediately thought, like, when you said that, like, they should make a Sean Mannion statue, so maybe they'll put one of those there. I don't know. Yeah, the memorabilia room is going to be really cool. That's in addition to the Welcome Center. um, I think they mentioned there's going to be, like, a, a sports bar type thing in the concessions area. Um, obviously all sorts of premium seating. And that's a good segue into this this next part where uh, we got some updates on, you know, the the ticket sales, the uh, the completion, the timeline and whatnot. So as far as premium seating goes, they have actually sold, I think, pretty much everything except for one uh, living room box or I, I don't have I don't have it pulled up, but there's there's one tiny little piece that has not been sold. Everything else, a year in advance has been sold. So I think it's awesome that they got a head start on that. Um, you know, they have the, you know, the, the big donations lined up and, and are already capitalizing on the revenue that this project is going to bring in long-term. The video board that, that Trevor just mentioned, it's about 40 to 50% complete. I know it was 30% when we walked through, um, but they have added to it since then. And, and we've actually heard that that's going to be complete by August 20th. So a week from now, Oregon State's going to have a brand new video board, which I don't know. The two of you have both been inside Reeser and I think would both agree that you just look up and that thing just feels huge. Um, Outside of that, uh, yeah, the the temporary press and and coaches boxes, those are, they're all in place, but they're still kind of working on the electrical and, you know, and all the Wi-Fi and everything that, that needs to be set up by game day. It will be done by game day um our, our viewing angles aren't going to be as good as they used to be in in that old press box you know it'll be about 15 rows up or so um but it'll be fun to be you know kind of the, the only ones on that side it'll it'll feel weird because there's nobody around us but uh to watch the game from a perspective that that none of the other people in that stadiums are quite yet i think it's going to be a fun opportunity um for us but angie you uh you didn't get to do the walkthrough but you've seen the project from inside research what are uh, what are your thoughts on how far they've come in the last eight months because i mean eight months ago the uh, the old grandstand was still standing yeah i mean it's i mean they're getting the the seal up on that third for the third level so that's that's amazing to see and um it's it, you know i was actually i walked on the field what was it tuesday wednesday and it's it's straight up and down i mean it's, it's really cool how they're building it kind of in in it's not a mirror image to the the old new side but it is going to be that up and down imposing, keeping that sound in place. So um, huge, huge. I, you know, I, I was part of the team that raised the the money for raising reserve in 2005. And I, at the time I thought it's never going to happen. They're never going to get to that other side. And so to see it happen, I'm super proud of those guys. 
Yeah, and, and that's another cool thing is, you know, talking about how it's not going to be maybe the most pleasing building to look at this year, but that's kind of a worthy sacrifice because it's going to, fans are going to be able to come in every week and kind of see new things added to it. Like, oh, those are new seats there. Oh, they, you know, added those stands. And I think that's going to be a really cool part of the experience. We experienced this at, at USC in 2018 when they were completely renovating one side of the Coliseum. No one remembers it. No one complained because no one was going to any of the games because they were five and seven. <laughs> Uh, so that was kind of a benefit. But, you know, going through that, um, seeing those renovations happen, you know, even though you had the year where it was ugly and it wasn't fun to go there as media members, going back the next year, you know, you're really like, oh, that was worth it, you know, now to have a better press box and all that stuff. So I'm very excited for that. And I can't believe neither of you mentioned that we need a faster press box elevator. The oh, thing- my God. Yes. yes. Please. Yes. That is the most stressed out person in the building. It's not Lindgren. It's not Trent Bray. It's not any of the coaches. It's not Jack Coletto. It's not any of the players. It's the the elevator operator has the single toughest job in the world. They're always stressed. They're always kind of panicked because they know they have like 13 people cramped in that elevator, all looking at them. Like, can you make this thing go faster? It is so, so. and And then how to prioritize, you know, like, do you get the media up or do you get the big boosters up? It's it's they shouldn't have to make all those tough choices, you know, and they're sitting in there knowing that there's a non-zero chance that that thing's getting stuck at least once per season. Definitely (laughs) non-zero. And how many times have you two made the decision? I have, you know, 50 pounds of gear on me at all times. And I've made the decision just to go down the crowd and get like beer thrown on me. People trying to steal my camera, kicking me, getting kicked by kids. I'm like, I'd rather do that. Then wait in the the, the yeah. tower of terror. I mean, come on, <laughs> it's ridiculous. You never know when that thing's going to go to a. Drop, well, and then so. the press box was so lovely with the pink Formica counters and the the janked up uh, plugs that you know like didn't work half the time. And oh yeah, we we have stories. Yeah. I actually saw one of the uh, one of the power outlets in the front row last year actually exploded when one of the opposing media members plugged in their computer, and I said, "Yep." It's a good thing Welcome that this is the final year. But Trevor, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the Coliseum and the upgrades they made there. I actually got to go there last year uh, when Oregon State played at USC. But this is a great opportunity to move away from Oregon State for the next, you know, the final 15 minutes or so of, of this week's episode. Um, I know this is an Oregon State podcast, but when we bring a guest like the Trevor Denton onto the show, we have to pick his brain about the rest of the Pac-12. And particularly, I want to get his his thoughts on realignment because of the ties to USC. So Trevor is a, a USC alum, you know, a big, a big, a big time Big Ten fan. Uh, you know, grew up <laughs> watching Big Ten games, thinking, man, I can't wait for the Trojans to play against Iowa. Can't wait to make that trip Rutgers. out to New Jersey, you know, to watch and play Rutgers. Trevor, just your perspective on USC making this move. Is it good for the program? Is it good for the Big Ten? What does it mean for the Pac-12? Just, you know, your, kind of your thoughts. Yeah, I love that. I always thought, you know, in the cornfields of, of South Central Los Angeles, you know, that we would be <laughs> a great fit in the Big Ten. Um, but, no, I, my first thought is that it sucks. Um, the fact that you're replacing so much tradition, you know, and and – there's great matchups in it. Like USC, Penn State, a whiteout game, that's going to be awesome. USC, Michigan, that's going to be awesome because of those Rose Bowl rivalries that are happening. But you go down the list and it's like, I would rather be facing Arizona 10 times out of 10 than Purdue or Rutgers or any of these matchups. But then as I think more about it, I have so many like mixed emotions. My first one being that it sucks. Like that day 
I was in such a weird like fog. It really affected me because the sport is like my entire life. And I, I love the entire sport. I, I grew up in SEC country in Atlanta, but we always had this affection um, for the Pac-12 when Arizona and Arizona State could give you a tough game and Oregon and Oregon State. I really enjoyed that era. That's, you know, when I really fell in love with, with college football from Reggie Bush to Mariota to that 2010 team that went undefeated. So I, I, I say all that to say I love the Pac-12 in its traditional form. And so my first reaction was, oh, this sucks. We're losing so much tradition. But then as you think more about it, it's like it's so hard to, like, pick who to be mad at. It's like I'm not really mad at Mike Bone. I think it was a sinking ship in some respects. And I think they were carrying – they were tired of carrying a sinking ship. And anytime you're in that position of leverage, if you feel like you're carrying a conference in terms of – uh in terms of just viewership and different things like that, not on the field, barely any of this has to do with what happens <laughs> on the field. But when you're carrying it, when you at least feel like you're carrying something in terms of, of revenue and interest, that's just not really a tenable situation. It was the same thing that we saw in the Big 12 with Texas and Oklahoma. They were so far and away, had more interest than the rest of the conference. So it's hard for me to blame uh, the athletic director, Mike Bone there, President Carol Fult, because I think when when he came in, he said, you know, we, we are going to compete for national titles. And that was something that we heard there all the time from Clay Helton. I'm here to compete for championships. But we knew it wasn't true. And we knew that in the athletic department with, with Lynn Swan and, and Mike Garrett and Pat Hayden, it wasn't true. They weren't investing in it. You'd walk around Heritage Hall and it felt like it, it didn't feel like a Division One program. I'm familiar with how SEC programs, how their, how their buildings, their facilities look. And it just didn't look like that. It felt Everything felt very out of date. Everything felt stuck in like the 80s, you know, the, the glory years of the 70s and the 80s. So Mike Bone came in as an outsider. They finally got someone that wasn't part of the, the, the vaunted Trojan family, you know, as if rushing for 1,500 yards in 1973 is a good requirement to be athletic director. They got an outsider and they got uh, an innovator who's with, and he brought Brandon Sosna with him, who's now gone, but two guys that are very analytics driven people. And they're they're they came in and they looked at a situation objectively. They didn't. They're not thinking about tradition. They're not making any decisions about tradition. They're making tra uh, decisions for how can we deliver national titles to a fan base that's been starving for that. So I'm not mad at them because I think it makes the most financial sense. Um, I think I'm mad at just what's happened to this sport. I think it's a victim of its own success. I think everybody likes it because of regional rivalries and wackiness and Pitt West Virginia playing every year and, and things like that. And it almost got too perfect and too great for its own good. And it has all these fans now flocking to it. And now the decision makers, the key ones, um, are making decisions that go against the very reason why this sport is so great in the first place. And those are, those are my roundabout uh, mixed emotions on the entire thing. That's how I feel about it. It's a very complex situation. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, you know, it was, that's a very well articulated take just because there are so many moving pieces to it where, you know, a lot of this has been precipitated just by college football's popularity and by the PAC 12's inability to manage itself for years and by, USC's lack of commitment to greatness and then the resurgence in in recent years under new leadership. I think all of these moving parts just kind of contributed to a perfect storm that, you know, we saw come to a head last year with Texas and Oklahoma, but this year, particularly with USC, um, you know, driving the bus and obviously UCLA kind of hopping on as, as its partner there. And UCLA just needed the money, but it, it's yeah. interesting. So Martin Jarmond, UCLA's athletic director was actually a finalist for Oregon State's job back when they hired Scott Barnes. But at the time, he had no AD experience, so they went with 
Barnes who had the AD experience. It's interesting to see what would have happened, you know, if the Beavers would not that Oregon State would have gone anywhere, but I'm um, just interesting to see what the outsider kind of mentality would be. Yeah, that would have been fascinating to see because he's another guy, right? That came into that situation, didn't really care about tradition. Yeah, he doesn't care. Decisions. He doesn't care about any of that. He's just making the decisions best for his athletic he's gotta, department. He's got to pay the bills because he's got like he's, 50 yeah. in debt. They're about to lose Polly Pavilion. That's going to be yeah, the exactly. crypto.com pavilion. And like, <laughs> not careful, or the lights are going to go out. But on the USC part of it, you kind of touched on it, Carter. It, the weird thing is it is like the meme, you know, we're all looking for the guy who did this. Like, it is partially their fault for being yeah. bad for so long and having incompetence that the entire conference um, has 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 dwindled in value as part of, part of USC not being relevant. So it is kind of funny that they're part of messing things up and then and then also getting out. And you know, I talk about I said you know USC has you know more eyeballs, more viewership, but you know I've seen sentiments out there that programs like Washington State and Arizona and Oregon State have no value, and I just I, I don't buy into that at all. I think all these programs have areas that they're strong in: women's basketball, baseball, and I think in football. I mean, Wazoo was. We have such recency bias with all this. Yeah. Wazoo was such a tough out four years ago, and they had Alex Grinch and Mike Leach. They were no one in the country. The entire nation wanted to face those Luke Falk teams. They could beat yeah. anyone. You get them on a Friday night in Pullman. That, yeah. They should be favored <laughs> yeah. by two touchdowns. So. The idea that Oregon State and Washington State have no value because of where they're located, I think, is ridiculous. I think every Division One team that's been D1 for a while is deeply woven into the fabric of this entire thing. And I think fans of the sport should take more of that approach to appreciating the entire thing. I think every member of D1 makes the entire thing work. And I don't like this idea floating around. I hear it all the time that like Washington State and Oregon State have no value. I just think that's, I think that's crap. I, I, the small market teams may not yeah. provide the, you know, the, the eyeballs that the, not everything's money. You know, not USD everything has to be about money. Right. But they, I, I think they're integral to the fabric of what makes this sport great. The you fact need the that underdogs, I mean, you need right. the underdogs. What, what is college exactly. football without Oregon state beating USC in 2008? Like those are, those are key moments in the history of this sport. Everybody has their role in the hierarchy and, 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 you know, I don't like the idea that that anybody's getting left behind in all this, you know? Yeah. Well, the Pac-12, as it stands, still has two more years of, you know, USC, UCLA, and the traditional makeup of, of what has been this conference for 100 years. Uh, in 2022, I, I think it's a really intriguing season. We only have a couple of minutes here, but I, I just want, I want to throw some predictions out there while we have Trevor um, because he is so tuned in to the entire conference. I, I think it's a really intriguing year for the conference. I think it's wide open at the top. Uh, there's no one team that, you know, really stands out. I, I know Utah was picked to win the conference, but I, I don't think they stand out as a, a clear cut above anybody else. And I, I think there are so many teams in the middle that are ready to take a leap into that top tier that makes this year really intriguing. And I, I think a, a good advertisement for Pac-12 football when it needs it the most. Um, so, so Trevor and and even Angie, if you want to throw some some predictions in here, Angie and I are going to run a, a separate Oregon State and, and Pac-12 prediction episode later on. Um, but if if you had to pick two teams and and one of them to win the Pac-12 championship, who who would you have competing for it, and who do you think comes away victorious uh, with that conference crown this year? Oh, man, there's so many different ways um, that it could go. But I think, first of all, 
the, the those two early season games I think are going to determine the entire season. That Utah Florida game is really going to set the tone because I think we've seen in the past Utah uh, their worst enemy has been Utah in September. They don't play that good of football early in the year, but if they can go into the swamp and get a win against an SEC opponent, a really talented team, man, the sky's the limit for them the rest of the year. We're talking like eleven and one, but that's such a such a swing game. I think if they win, um, then I'd pick Utah. I think USC to me is interesting because I think they have the best playmakers, potentially the best quarterback. They're going to score a, a lot of points, but I think people are ignoring that. Like they didn't get front seven transfers they got one offensive lineman Bobby Haskins they replenished the receivers completely with Mario Williams and Jordan Addison they didn't get a D lineman in the portal they have the same guys and and um you know I'm not saying any of those guys are trash or they're not going to improve but how many rushing yards did they give up to Oregon State last year and those are the same kind of guys in the building USC will lose a couple weird games because of this they could lose to a cow just a day where they can't stop the run whatsoever they will lose some games like that and that's why i have more trust in utah to come out of the south than than usc i think people are ignoring some of the issues um on the front seven and you kind of read the tea leaves too and i think um they kind of hint at that like man like Corey foreman former number one recruit like he's not there yet some of these cornerbacks that we got just aren't there yet so i have concerns there and then you know on the oregon side of things i think dan lanning just inherited a really good roster and it just depends on the quarterback but those would be my two picks to be boring but i think there's some interesting kind of storylines within that you know what i mean yeah it's you know like i said it's an interesting year because i don't think there's one clear pick and and you you mentioned three teams right there that can win it but i'm curious if you have an underrated team that might make that leap and and compete i think Oregon State fans really hope that the Beavers can be that team this year. I know that Washington State has some sneaky optimism up there on the Palouse. UCLA with Chip Kelly in, in kind of a make-or-break year, a lot of veteran players on that team. Do you see any of these teams being maybe a bit underrated? And if they are, you know, who's a team that they might leap that, you know, that maybe is, is being hyped a little too much? Well, my, my, my surprise team is Washington State, actually. You mentioned that just because uh, I, I don't think people are talking about Cameron Ward enough. That's an NFL quarterback that you're plugging into that offensive system that we've seen be so good. They also got the well, – do you guys know the linebacker's name from Nevada? I don't see it in front of me, but they got him too, who's like potentially the best defensive transfer that was hanging around there um, kind of in the off season. But Washington State, to me, is going to give you a lot of tough games with Cameron Ward and just the ability to score points there. Um, they got some continuity back with Jake Tick- Dicker kind of stabilizing things at the head coaching spot. But, man, that north is is so tough. There's really there's really no easy outs. But I think Washington State's kind of my surprise team. I think Oregon State um, could make some noise there. Um, you said overrated, too. Who's kind of overrated? I don't know about UCLA, um, to be honest. I'm definitely not confident on, like, Arizona they State. Wear, I think they wear stupid. baby blue. I mean, for God's sake. <laughs> I don't know about them. I feel like we've seen the DTR thing, you know, so many times. Like, what's kind of the ceiling there? I think winning that game against LSU in the Rose Bowl was kind of the – kind of the ceiling is this my chance to do my coach oh get, get over here with the assistant <laughs> yeah angie no i'm glad you mentioned the blue because I, I was waiting for that assistant Come on, blue shirt. 
What do you say? Come on down here with your sissy blue shirt. It's like, what is that? Was, that a, was that a threat? Was that a compliment? Do you like do you like what I'm wearing? I was like, what, what's going on there? But I think if, if I'm going underrated, I'm going with Washington State. The only thing I think it's going to hold them back, you know, is just playing an extremely difficult North team. But I just don't feel like people are talking about Cameron Ward enough, man. You watch the tape. That guy's ridiculous. Like, we're talking, like, potential, like, second, first-round pick over there, and, and no one's really talking about him. Everyone wants to talk about Caleb Williams, but Cameron Ward is – less behind him i think caleb williams is the best guy in the conference but but um cameron ward's less far behind him than you would maybe think i think oregon's fascinating right because i think dan lang inherited such a good foundation such a good o-line a d-line um pretty good dbs receivers but it's like what is going to happen at quarterback because bo Nix has been a roller coaster ride ty thompson wasn't that good in the spring game like that's the position of question for them. And the fact that that's the one question means, you know, your season could go a lot of different directions. It's kind of like the one spot where you don't want that big of a question mark. Pac-12 expertise from Trevor Denton. We're running out of time here. We know we got to get you out because you've got your responsibilities on TV. I want to thank you, Trevor, for for having us. We'll see you again this week at uh, fall camp down in Corvallis. Of course, Angie, thanks for joining me as always here on the damn podcast. Angie and I will be back next week. We're going to start going twice a week during the football season. We're going to run a couple of previews, uh, talk some offense, talk some defense, and kind of how we see Oregon State's season shaking out as we get within, what, two weeks of the season opener now? Three weeks. It's coming up quickly. Trevor and Angie will be busy Uh, all week covering Oregon State's fall camps. So if you're in the coverage area of KVAL, CAMTR, check out uh, Trevor's great coverage. And of course, Angie and I will uh, keep it locked down for beaverblitz.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Carter Baines. You can follow him at Trevor Denton 37 and her at Angie Machado one. Thanks guys for joining me this week. And and thanks to all of our our, uh, viewers on YouTube, our listeners, wherever you're listening to podcasts. Uh, And and thanks for being a part of the reason we are joining the 24-7 Sports Podcast Network. Exciting times. Get ready for more content throughout fall camp and uh, be sure to stick with beaverblitz.com for all the latest. We'll be back next week.